welcome, Andrew. Thank you for your time. And I will do a little quick blurb here. Andrew is the CEO and founder of Check. It's a payroll infrastructure startup that makes it possible for platforms to offer payroll as an additional service to their customers. I'm sure there's even more to that. We'll get into it. Check is backed by Stripe, Index, Bedrock, a bunch of rock star companies, investors. Andrew previously co-founded and was CTO of Oyster, the Netflix for book services. It was acquired by Google in 2015 and where he worked on Google Play products before starting Check. So as always, there's a lot to unpack and very little time. We'll do our best. Andrew, officially welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so I want to, before jumping into check, I want to highlight a bit on Oyster, on that experience. There are a number of years there. What would you say were some hard learned lessons from that journey? Thinking back, going back in time. Yeah, for sure. So a little bit of background. Started my first company, Oyster, back in 2012, and we ran it for about four years. The company fundamentally was an ebook subscription service. So think about what Spotify has done for music or what Netflix was doing for, for movies and TV at the time. We were essentially trying to do the same thing for books and nothing like it existed at that point in time. There's now services like Kindle Unlimited that do similar things, but you know none of that existed back then. And so a huge, huge part of what we had to do there was actually go strike these deals with major publishers. And I started this with, you know, two other guys. We were all 23, 24 at the time. And you can imagine like, you know, you're walking into these, some of these publishing houses are literally 150 years old. Like these are really old school companies. And some of them are, are frankly, like just super literary and traditional as well. And so trying to say, hey, there's a new business model out here that can benefit you. Maybe you don't want to be entirely dependent on Amazon and the ebook space. You know, that was a, it was a hard pitch to make in the beginning. We ultimately, <laughs> you know, got them over the hump and like, it's been hours walking through tactically like how we did that. But I think, you know, one of the while I'm proud of what we were able to ultimately do there, I think actually one of my biggest takeaways, biggest lessons from that is I think those deals were actually too hard. I think it would have been smarter for us to recognize that actually structurally, it was a tough industry to be in, being a middleman between these publishers who didn't really want you to exist in the first place. And then consumers, mm -hmm. on the other hand, who generally weren't reading that much to, to begin with, it was a tough market. And so that certainly influenced how I thought about future ventures going forward. That's fascinating. So looking back in time, you're like, I don't think I would have gone that direction. What, I mean, would have, yeah. have you thought about, I mean, what would have been better with, even within that same business model, would it, there have been any other route or not really? It's tough to say. I think Kindle Unlimited, which I referenced earlier, has done it best. And, and really the key distinction there is almost all of their content is self-published content. And it's content that they basically are having self 
technology through their system. And as a result mm -hmm. of that, the rights are structured differently. So basically they ensure that as Amazon, they're able to keep a, a particular percentage of the funds. And they're basically paying out a pool of funds to all of the authors who are you know, contributing their work. It's a model where the economics makes more sense. And from a, a, a content creator author perspective, you know, these are generally less well-known folks anyway. And so for them, it's kind of all upside, all gravy. And as a really especially an unlimited subscription platform, a huge amount of your value comes from what demand you can create. So, you know, the author that's already able to drive demand, they don't really need you. On the other hand, it's the unknown folks who if you can drive folks to their work, actually it can be a really great, you know, win-win proposition there. So I think that's sort of the right way to do it. And getting there is very hard. I mean, even most of the big streaming services generally haven't quite gotten there. They're all trying and have, you know, challenges to to various degrees. So I think that that's really the right way. Could we have done that as an independent company and especially competing with Amazon Head Start? They had an ebooks. really hard to say. I tend to think probably not, but structurally, that's how I'd want to do it. Did you ever have to pivot or iterate from that original idea? Or was Oyster already a pivot from something else? No, for, for better or worse, really both companies I've started have been pretty much like pick the idea and run straight at it. I don't know. You wow. could describe me as maybe stubborn and hard-headed in, in that regard. I don't know. Maybe disciplined would be the, the more positive way to look at it. But uh, no, in both cases, we really said, hey we have an idea of how the world should work. We're pretty confident in this. And I think both Oyster and we'll talk more about Czech were, were rooted in an insight around sort of a market dynamic and a, a gap in the industry that needed to be filled. And we've said, hey, I think in both cases, these are going to be hard businesses to build and create. A lot of people we think would be scared away from them. They're actually fundamentally really difficult to kind of test and, and iterate your your way into. It's actually in a lot of ways like its own moat. Uh, it keeps kind of other folks out from competing with you. And so now we picked it and we're kind of full steam ahead. Did Did you fundraise for Oyster? We did. Yeah, we raised, I forget the exact amount, but two or three rounds, probably 17 million or so roughly in, in total. Founders Fund was probably our, our biggest name backer. Wow. Very cool. We'll we'll jump into some fundraising questions later on, but I was just curious about that one. I'll, I'll include it in those questions. So let's jump into Czech. What, so what problem is Czech solving? Yeah. So fundamentally, the way to think about what we do is we are making payroll much easier to access and run for your typical local small business. So basically, don't, don't think about companies like ours or, or other startups. Think about someone who's running the coffee shop that's down the street from you or the ice cream shop that you like to go to when it's hot in the summer. For those folks, you know, maybe they have five, six, eight, ten people working for them. And these people, they're themselves entrepreneurs, right? They're running their own business, but they're not VC back. You know, they're running things on a shoestring. And as an owner operator, you have a million different things that you've got to do. You got to be able to actually produce your product. You got to market it. You got to clean up the store at the end of the day. You got to hire these people, attract these folks in a really tight labor market, actually train them and keep them happy. You know, it's a complex job. If you rewind kind of how the world worked prior to, to check getting started, most of those folks at, well, it, we've kind of gone through two transitions. Like 10 years ago, most of them were basically running on pen and paper. And, you know, these were offline old school businesses. 
that's really changed over the last you know five to ten years, and especially accelerated during COVID, where most of them now have adopted some sort of digital tool to run on. A good example is Homebase, which was our first partner. They're a time tracking and scheduling tool for these small businesses. So if you want to go and sign up for Homebase, you're able to actually instead of you know literally putting a piece of paper on the wall saying you know Andrew's going to work on Monday and Alejandro's going to work on Tuesday, you can do mm. that all in their app. What Check does is we make it where instead of having to use home base for scheduling and then go sign up for some legacy partner to run payroll for you, we do it all in one place. And so what that means is now home base can offer home base payroll and, and you can get it directly you know, built into their service, which saves you a bunch of time, energy, and effort. You're not searching for another vendor. Those folks understand your business at its core. Each of our partners is building payroll for different types of demographics and industries. And so you end up with a system that, you know, one of my favorite stories is one of our partners had a customer run payroll from the back of his horse in the middle of, of the Texas prayer. So that's like, that's kind of how easy and simple, you know, we're trying to make it for folks to be able to pay their workers. That's, that's pretty crazy. How, how did you come across this problem? So I know that after Oyster, you were, you went to Google. Was it related to what you were currently working on in Google or was it completely separate? Yeah, not at all. It was totally separate. And honestly, if you had asked me probably a year before starting, or not even asked me, it told me that I was going to be running a payroll business. I would have kind of looked at you funny and thought you, you'd kind of lost it. You know, like in many things, I think it was a serendipitous set of circumstances that led me to the problem. The way we really first uh, found it was actually in a very customer-driven way. So we happened to be very close with the folks at Homebase, who I referenced earlier, who was our first mm -hmm. partner. And really were able to kind of see the world through their eyes and understand why actually kind of before we had ever started up, they wanted to offer payroll. They were basically looking for exactly the solution that we have now built and it just didn't exist. So that was an amazing customer signal that, hey. So it was literally a conversation and I'm guessing the founders, you, you had a good relationship exactly. with the founders and they're like, yep. hey, how's what's up, buddy? How, what are you up to? And it's like, yeah, we need this payroll <laughs> exactly. And, and I think it B2B markets, especially like enterprisey B2B markets, that's often the best way to do it, right? You want to solve a problem. And a lot of companies come from solving your own problem, but I think in a lot of ways, an even better way is solve the problems for, you know, your friends and, and contacts <laughs> and colleagues, especially ones who say, hey, yeah, we want this. It doesn't exist. If you build it, you know, we'll sign up and, and pay you. That's a pretty powerful signal. And so that's, that was the, the whole impetus. How did you, when, when this happened and you said, you know what, that if it's happening to them, it could be happening to others. And you decided to get started on check. Do you remember what your first, what did you do for your first client? Like, how did you sign up that first client? What, how did you realize, like, maybe it's through the partnership, you know, how did that look like? Yeah, there's sort of there's a couple of different layers, I guess, to this question. First of all, as I said, we really found the whole opportunity through our first partner. And so for that reason, it, it was almost the opposite. It's like <laughs> we found that first customer and then we decided to start the company around it. So, you know, it was a little bit different in that regard. That said, like, it sounds straightforward in retrospect, but like, building payroll is complex, which is really the reason we exist. It's a hyper-local industry. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of taxes all across the country that you have to support. 
building a payroll company that works in like one state doesn't really do anyone any good when your customers are, you know, national software companies. So even with kind of the pre-work we had done, it was, you know, probably a year to a year and a half after starting the business before we had our first actual signed contract with someone to get up and running with us. Because until that point, we just didn't have a real product that, that they were going to be able to use. So, you know, that was the journey. But even from there, even beyond just starting from, uh, from you know, that first partner, we knew we needed to validate the market more and find others. Obviously, you didn't want to start a, a, a company with with one product. And so, <laughs> you have sorry, that one, one client. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we really pounded the pavement. It was a matter of, you know, you work your network, but you also go and do a bunch of research. You Google and try and find, you know, the list of, for us, vertical SaaS companies and workforce management companies that are out there. And literally I wrote them cold emails. It's it's funny. I reference these sometimes because we're we're now frequently signing these folks up. And often one of the last things I'll do when we're trying to close the customer is I'm like, we literally started the company to serve your type of business. And I can prove it to you because here's the email I sent you from my personal email address, you know, three and a <laughs> half or almost four years ago, like before we even had founded the business. And saying we were going to do this, explaining the benefit it was going to have for you. And, you know, maybe it took you three or four years to kind of, you know, figure that out. But but now here we are. So, yeah. And, you know, surprisingly, cold emails work. You reach out to people, write something incredible. And especially if there's a, if there's a pain point they have and there is really no one else meeting that in the market, you know, folks will respond. And that that is really, I think, what gave us the conviction to strike out. Has that been the best channel of acquisition for you guys, the like email marketing, or have there been others that have been really helpful in getting in front of these you know prospects? Yeah, so I think a little bit of background here is helpful. Check is a pretty concentrated business. In our partnership model, we have a real leverage model where each of our partners often serves anywhere from thousands to sometimes hundreds of thousands of small businesses. Uh, what that means is our smallest relationships with our partners are typically call it in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the biggest ones are, you know, millions and, and you know, within time will be tens of millions of dollars. So we're not the type of business that needs even hundreds of customers, much less thousands. You know, we need really dozens of, of really, really good partners. So with that in mind, and I would say traditional marketing isn't really how we go about things. Our single best source of, of new customers has been really referrals, both from existing customers and from largely the, the venture community. You know, those folks are invested in many of the best companies. Check is really a new revenue opportunity for the companies that we partner with. And so investors will often be on the board of one business, see payroll really working for them, and then start to, you know, recommend all the other companies in their network that we work with them as well. When you say a revenue opportunity, is there, what, what normally happens for them? Yeah. So typically the way this works is that a company, I'll, I'll take actually a, another customer of ours, MITRE as an example. They're a vertical SaaS company in the construction space serving contractors. And, and for them, basically payroll is another product that they offer. And it's something that you're able to charge more money for than for you know your core product line. And so that, that's pretty typical for all of our partners. And so there's sort of this triple benefit where Payroll is kind of one of the most core services for these businesses. And so you really establish yourself as the system of record when you offer it. 
as a result of doing that, payroll is very sticky. And so typically it reduces churn across all of your product lines, not just your new payroll product line, which can be really powerful. And then third, you typically are able to charge for it. This is typically a line item that every company is spending money on regardless. So it's a kind of share of wallet play. And so it, it, it can increase top line as well. Very cool. When, as you began signing up and building these partnerships, what do you believe the, the role of a CEO founder should be as, as your team grows? And, and we, on top of that, what are certain obstacles that if you could go back in time and tell yourself as you see a company growing, like make sure to keep this in mind and make sure to keep this in mind. But for that first question, what, what do you believe the role of a CEO founder should be as you're growing your team? Yeah, it, it absolutely varies by stage. So let me take that, those early, you know, that first couple of years, let's say in that stage, I think really it's all about momentum. You know, your, your company is default dead, right? It doesn't exist in the world yet. And you're really trying to will the thing into existence. And so more than anything else, you've got to be able to do that. And everything else is secondary. On any given day, exactly what's required may be different. It may be, you know, the ability to pitch a co-founder or, you know, an early employee on why this thing that doesn't exist yet is something that they should come devote, you know. 60, 80 plus hours a week of their time to for the next however many years. Or it might be, you know, making that same pitch to an investor, or it may be convincing a customer why, you know, they should be willing to try out this beta of this thing that no one else is on yet and, you know, take some risk on their side of their time and energy and whatnot. Kind of in all instances, it's basically asking other folks to trust you and trust your vision of what the future can be like and why that's a worthwhile thing for, for them to follow. So, you know, especially in that stage, I think it is a, it's actually a deeply personal thing, right? In most cases, those folks are really, I think, betting on you more than anything else and choosing to follow you. And so um, I think that's part of what makes founders special and, and kind of what differentiates, you know, the best ones is the folks who can, you know, really do a fantastic job of getting people to follow them in that stage. And then really relentlessly looking for any given way to, to create momentum, you know, especially when you get to launch, like how do you craft that blog post or, you know, convince the reporter to write the article or, you know, write the tweet storm that's going to go viral, whatever the case may be, like any little thing you can do to kind of get that flywheel spinning. And that's, that's really the whole name of the game. And then once, once you have that flywheel spinning, then I think the job sort of shifts from being momentum creator to it's really more of a, a business builder and kind of business scaler, which is a whole, you know, I think other set of things you have to do. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to who, who's one of the first people that outside of the core group of you know founders that you decided to hire, like what responsibility was that? And, and why was that the first one that you went for? Yeah. So we, we hired two people at essentially the same time they, they debate one of them signed first and one of them started first. So I don't know, you tell me who was the, you know, the first employee, uh, but one was an engineer. And it was someone that we had worked with before and knew was was just fantastic all around, you know, like founder level type person. And it, you know, that was responsibilities was fundamentally, we have a whole lot of software we need to build, you know, come, come build it with us. So that was one big piece of it. And, and by the way, payroll is interesting because 
One of the things we've done from the very beginning is run on our own system. So we refused to pay ourselves until we had built enough of it out that, you know, that we could actually you know, run, <laughs> run some volume that's, through it. That's and a great way of, of speeding up, having it get developed. Totally, truly. You learn so well. And so, and it helps when myself and my co-founder, Vivek, our CTO are both technical, but still we, we were both in New York and our first engineer, Ian, was out in California and San Francisco. And so we said, basically his first project was, hey, you want to get paid? You got to add support for California. So that's, you know, pretty good motivation <laughs> to, to kind of learn the rules and regs and everything and, and get it built out. So, so that was employee number one. Employee two is a guy named Jim who was basically our payroll expert. And, and and honestly, we didn't come from the industry, so I didn't even really know all the terms and quite what to look for then. But but basically, this was someone who had grown up in the payroll industry, worked in the traditional payroll company for a long time, learned the ins and outs of it through their training and by doing customer support. And then had actually gone and worked for another startup in the kind of HR and, and payroll space. And so had learned more of what it takes to build a business, not just work in one that's you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, and, and then on top of that, someone who wanted to take some risk, who was willing to join a six month old idea that had, you know, two or three people in it and, you know, buy into our vision of, of what the future was going to be like. And honestly, in that interview process, we we knew we were sold when he, we were sort of describing how we ran payroll for ourselves. And he was like, I think you might be doing a couple of things wrong here. And, you know, kind of <laughs> started telling us how we should do things differently. And we were like, yep, you're the right Perfect. one. We need Hired. you. And that was it. Exactly. That's all we need. Very cool. I love that. I love that because you didn't come from that space that hadn't been your industry that, you know, the second or whatever, first hire was someone from that space. And, and I mean, yeah. was the role literally just that it was, it was kind of, I guess, operations, right? Like of like what, what should be implemented, what shouldn't it within the, the product itself or. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Jim now runs payroll operations and, and support for us. So it's, it's grown over time. But yeah. I mean, in the earliest days, it was a lot of things. It was certainly everything operational, everything support oriented. It was also a little bit, companies call it different things, but sort of product analysts, you know, we're mm -hmm. building something out. Is this working in the right way? Like a little bit of product management, that sort of thing, you know, in a small team, everyone's doing kind of anything that, that you can, can figure out. And that was definitely the case there as well. And, and I just add, like, this is definitely a theme, by the way, across both of my companies. I was not a publishing or books expert when I started Oyster. It's definitely not a payroll expert when I started Check either. And in both cases, one of the first five people we've hired in the company has been someone that has come, you know, from the industry and has pretty deep expertise there. And I think that's a, it's a really crucial, important hire to make. It's also one that you got to make sure to get right. It can lead you also in the wrong direction if you hire the right, wrong person as well. In 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 Oyster, was that first individual also someone that shared a similar trait, which they would tell you what you were doing wrong? <laughs> like, was that was that something also that you looked for? Totally, and and in that case, as I mentioned earlier, like striking the partnerships was the hard part. So this was really a, a BD partnerships person, someone that you know, this guy named Matt that had come from working in big publishing houses before, and and in our case, like. We kind of knew we were doing it wrong because we didn't have any deals yet. So that was, you know, fairly obvious. So the question was more, you know, not, are we doing this right? It's, hey, what do we need to do differently in order to be credible and actually, you know, kind of be able to go and go and get those deals? And, you know, it, I think, especially in that case, you know, this was someone who was a little older, more established in his career, you know, had something on the line. I think actually simply the fact of him choosing to come work with us 
made us much more credible in the eyes of the community. We were able to really bring, you know, kind of his reputation and whatnot into the business and and have it help us out a lot. So yeah, it's another sort of thing you can often try and do. Did you test pricing is really important, clearly, right? I, I think when you're starting out, you know, the the product, what it can do, the problem, all those things are valuable. And but pricing on its own is 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 you gotta get it right. In your case, did you have to test it out? Were, were, were there many different iterations for the pricing? How What did that look like? Yeah, so I, I think we've done the most iteration with check. And I, I would even say there's, there's pricing, but beyond that, I would describe packaging as actually even the harder part of it. And taking a step back, you know, our model is one where fundamentally we grow with our partners as they bring more companies and employees onto the system that they're running payroll for. We we make a, a little bit of money, I think a few bucks from from kind of each of the employees. So that, and the way we knew that early on, the business model was relatively straightforward. Even the pricing was, there was a pretty tight bound on it because we're essentially cost of goods sold for these folks. And there's a lot of payroll companies out there it was relatively clear what they were going to be able to charge. And so we knew we had to be in sort of a certain band for the economics to, to make sense for them. We still, you know, analyze that. And it, it's a, I think an interesting long-term strategic question for us. But anyway, like even with a lot of that figured out, the packaging around it has had to change over time because on day one, you don't have a payroll business yet. So you're not paying mm -hmm. us anything. And we might have to work with you for a while to help get you live. Like, should we charge you for that? How should we do that? How do we align those incentives? You know, we've done everything from basically give out API keys like they're candy to charge, you know, really substantial, you know, call it tens of thousands of dollars a month, you know, type of fees basically, you know, just to work with us. And it's been a evolving process there to find the right ways to really align incentives in a partnership where it's not just a, hey, let's kind of see if this works, but say, hey, we're making a big commitment to really work together. We're going to acknowledge that commitment while also recognizing that, you know, what we're both aiming for is a lot of upside above and beyond kind of these initial starting economics. When you you were able to obviously fundraise for for both Oyster and Czech, what advice would you give your younger self when it comes to fundraising? Yeah. So I'll say, first of all, I think in both cases, we've been quite fortunate and, and successful in our fundraising journey. And so it wasn't like at Oyster, it was a giant slog and I'm like, Hey, here's the, the you know, all the things that I would do differently. Was and, that and because of the traction? Was that because of like, was it the right timing already for you to, when, when you decided to fundraise, you had a pretty clear illustration of you were already in a rocket ship or what, what, what was something that really yeah. there? There were, it, it, for probably our second round, that was true. I think in the earlier days, it really came down to team connections and kind of execution probably in, in that order. And I think to some degree that's been true, you know, it's in the early days here at Check as well. But number one, I think across both companies I've started, we just had 
really, really awesome founding teams. And I mean, you can look at that myself, my two co-founders from Oyster, you know, I now run Czech and my other co-founder runs a large venture firm and third one runs incubations for another large venture firm. We've kind of all gone on to do, you know, pretty successful things. And, mm. and I think folks looked at that and saw that and said, oh, wow, these are three, you know, really talented young guys coming together to do this. Like we want to bet on them. So that was really, really helpful. And, and truly, I mean, probably your, your co-founders are, you know, probably equal to your market, like the most important choice that you're going to make. And, and investors know that and read into it and like, make no mistake about it. Like investors are going to hardcore analyze, like who is your co-founder? Why are they your co-founder? How did you pick them? Like, you know, yeah. it's a critical thing that any great investor is going to think about. So that was number one. And then two, um, and in the early days, I'll give my co-founder Eric from Oyster credit here. He was just great at, at being kind of networked in with VCs, knowing them and beyond just like, it's not like a show up at a happy hour sort of a thing. He had like forgone, you know, high paying jobs and finance and other places to take like unpaid internships at startups and over like a multi-year period, really like get to know these folks and work with them and kind of prove himself. And so it'd become a little bit of a known commodity in the industry, even, you know, really early on in his career. And so that really helped us there. And then for check. I mean, as a second time founder, especially with, you know, a reasonable amount of success in your first company, I mean, it's just much easier in particular, actually, Eric, as I mentioned, started a venture firm. So ended up leading our first <laughs> two rounds here and we co-founded Check together. So we kind of had a- had You a, had a an in with up, Eric. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really funny. And for Check, did you have another co-founder? Was there any correlation or like working in the past with that co-founder or what was that? Totally. Yeah. So there were three of us. So it was myself, Eric helped co-create the concept. So it wasn't operationally involved as a board member, lead investor and co-founder in check. And then our, our third co-founder is Vivek, who is our CTO here. And he was the second engineer I had hired at Oyster. So mm -hmm. by the time we started check, we had already been working together for, I don't know, six or seven years or something at, at that point. And, and you know, I, I think he said it best in the early days, like, Part of what gave us conviction in working together, obviously we, we respected each other and believed in each other, but more than that, we'd really seen each other at our best and at our worst. You know, no one's perfect. Like, mm -hmm. you know, people make mistakes, they get angry, everything. But like, we literally, we had one couch in the back. We had two couches in, in the Oyster office, <laughs> but only one of them was comfortable. And we had literally, you know, spent like all nighters there, you know, taking turns on, you know, who was going to nap on the couch while the other one worked on, you know, finishing the feature or whatnot. And just when you've been through those types of experiences with people, the, the level of trust you have and the, the depth of communication you have is just something you can't really, you know, recreate. And so it's just, it, it's actually been one of the great, I think, pleasures of building Check is in, in actually several different cases, we've been able to have folks from, you know, prior experiences come and join and, you know, kind of get the band back together, if you will. And that's just been super fun as a result. Are there any blogs or any type of content that you recommend or even YouTube channels, anything, something that you enjoy, you, you're constantly consuming, you, you see it bring tons of value for you in the past, anything to recommend? It's a little bit of a, a hard question to answer. And then I think like, you know, there's no shortage of content out there today. Like there's, you know, tremendous, you know, kind of like, in a way that 15 years ago was just totally different. There's such a big, you know, building in public ethos. So many VCs are publishing great things. So I, I don't know that I have a, a diamond in the rough recommendation, but what I will tell you is that certainly, you know, 
before starting Oyster. And frankly, through the first five to 10 years of my career, I was pretty content obsessed. Like I, you know, listened, watched, read, whatever to pretty much anything I could get my hands on from, you know, the blogs of, you know, all the, you know, big name VCs from Fred Wilson on down to, you know, the, you know, both business and start a podcast, whatever it might be. I remember back in the day, there was like a Stanford class, like iTunes series that they would publish that uh-huh. was really good. And so like, you know, anything and everything basically. And I think that actually really did help helped ground me a bit in like the history of the industry and how these companies were built some of the stories of how you know things like this you know i think kind of some tips and tricks of what worked for folks and what didn't but also crucially kind of the, the volume of it was high enough that you rec- you were able to realize that actually there was no basically consistent piece of advice that worked for everyone <laughs> and i think in general if you're not like deeply engaged in the business. Like there is so much sort of domain specificity to things that, you know, kind of generic advice is hard to take. But I think if you kind of listen and and sort of, you know, engage with enough stuff, you can definitely start to recognize patterns and in certain situations, what might be helpful to know here and how might I want to respond to it. And that for me, what is what became really useful. To be honest, the last few years though, like checks got into a size and a scale where I'm sort of consumed enough by it that in my remaining free time, I kind of Try have basically sworn off of other startup oriented content. So I'm like, all right, this is what I do all day anyway. I I need something else in my brain. Oh, that's funny. Did and I'm gonna open this up for Q and A. But one one last question here, specifically around discovery calls. So when you when you are having a conversation with someone that could be a new customer, a new partner, are there are there best practices? Are there things that you realized you were doing before that wasn't really helping you out when it came to understanding more about who that customer was and what specifically they needed you for? If, if Does anything, yeah, if you could share a little bit. Yeah, it, it totally resonates. Discovery is hard, first of all, and it's it's very much an art. And I think this has been an evolving you know, process for us. It is in my mind, I think like I personally and we as a company have done this best when we have embraced being deeply curious. And so what I mean by that is in the earliest days, like we didn't, I couldn't just sell you what we had sitting on the truck. And so like, I didn't come into a meeting with, Hey, check is so amazing. Here's like why you should use this. I came with, Hey, I think the world could work differently in the future, but mostly I want to learn about your business and your problems and ask you a bunch of questions about them and see if those two things match up. And so I think it is really that mindset of even once you do have something to sell, not leading with you know what you have, but actually rather who they are and what business problem they are trying to solve that has been the difference for us and and you know whether we're having you know really successful calls versus not. No, yeah, I was just going to say, it's this sort of the the famous, you know, if you ask someone what they want, they'll tell you, you know, the the faster horse or whatever, right? Instead of the car, and you definitely, if you're just asking questions, you can end up there. And that's where the art comes in. You have to be able to sort of synthesize and recognize the patterns and what people are saying and and see if that matches up with, you know, your, what you built or your vision of what you are going to build and then help, you know, bring those customers along with it. But it it, it really, really helps if you start with, the customer and what they need versus just, you know, what you have. Yeah. Yeah. 
Makes a ton of sense. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, man. Congratulations on what you're doing. Awesome. Thanks, Alejandro. Appreciate the uh, the invite. It's an awesome community. So, you know, thanks for, for spending it up and thanks for inviting me. Thank you, man. All the best. Take care. Oh, See you, everybody. Bye-bye.